God, Romans chapter 1. Uh, this sermon is entitled Roadmap of Romans. And when I was a little kid, when we would take trips, I always liked to look at the atlas. You get the great big old jumbo-sized uh, Rand McNally atlas and look as back in the day before we had GPS and cell phones and all that stuff, you know. So we had to entertain ourselves somehow. So I would grab the map and look, and I would try to see where we were going on the map and uh, try to see where we were at and, and, and how we were going to get to where we were supposed to go. And so we're going to begin this uh, new series on Romans, and we're going to be looking over the map, so to speak, this morning. Before we start off on this journey, we're going to take a, a glimpse uh, of the entire map, uh, hopefully to see our destination. And where is our destination in this book of the Bible? Well, I believe when we study Romans, we're going to see that we should get right and stay right with God by fully trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ. The book of Romans is all about getting right with God and staying right with God. And how do we do that? We do that by God's grace that's given to us through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our destination as we begin this journey. Let me invite you to stand, if you're able, this morning out of reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God. I'll be reading from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves at this time coming to your presence. Lord, again, we thank you for all that's already transpired here today. Father, now we turn our focus to the Scripture. We turn so with the conviction that this is your word, that God, you have revealed yourself to us through what is written. And Father, we pray that we would come today expecting to hear from you. You would open our minds to understand, open our hearts, God, that we might receive it, live it out in obedience to you. Father, we pray that uh, through the preaching of your word, through the moving of your Holy Spirit through the word, we pray today that if there be any who are lost, we pray today would be the day of salvation as you speak to their hearts, showing them their need for a Savior, showing them the truth that Jesus is the only Savior. Father, we come with expectation, eagerly ready to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is profitable. Some have said all Scripture is equally inspired. It's all the Word of God. But with that being said, there are some portions of Scripture that seem to be a little more profitable, a little more useful, not to take away anything from any of the Scriptures. But when you read the, the genealogies in the book of Chronicles, that's, it's useful, not quite as useful as some other parts of the Bible. And today, we're going to begin this journey through the book of Romans. Some have considered this to be perhaps the most important 
of all the books of the Bible as Paul lays out for us in systematic form the truth of the doctrine of, of Jesus Christ and what it is and why it matters. Some of the great uh, theological giants of the history of the church, Augustine, Luther, Wesley, they all, they all confess that the book of Romans is what led to their conversion, either reading it or hearing it or studying it for themselves. Again, this is Paul's most systematic letter of the 13 that he wrote. And through almost two decades of preaching, I've never preached a series through the book of Romans. Been a little bit intimidated by that, and because it's such a, a powerful book, it's such an important book, it's such a profound and such a deep doctrinal book of the Bible. But by God's grace, we'll launch into this deep ocean of truth found in the book of Romans, and we're going to start today with a brief overview. Before we get digging into the meat of it, I thought it would be good for us to kind of just take a, a refresher course and remind ourselves, and maybe today, maybe for the first time, you'll get to understand what Romans is about. And one thing I want to challenge each and every one of you to do over the next several weeks, months, however long it takes us to go through this, I want you all to be reading the book of Romans for yourself. You know, take a few moments every day, read a chapter or read a, a few verses of a chapter, but just immerse yourself. Just, just dive in for yourself and, and read it and let God speak to you. It's such a rich book of the Bible. And I encourage you to do that so that way when we come together on Sunday mornings, God will continue to just deepen what we've already seen and read in the book. Well, the first place for us to start is to understand the letter's author. You know, if this is a, a letter, who wrote the letter? And we don't have to go very far to find the answer to that question. Look at the first word of the entire book, Paul. So right there, and, and that's very little uh, theological debate about that. Sometimes scholars want to try to argue and wrestle over everything, but it's almost universally accepted by all that Paul wrote the book of Romans. And he wrote this, many believe, around the year 57 A.D., so if Jesus uh, was crucified, resurrected, and ascended around the year 30 A.D., so in less than three decades we have this book of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul to write these profound truths. And most believe he wrote this on his third missionary journey. We read the book of Acts, and we see Paul taking three missionary trips in the book of Acts. And many believe on that third trip, Paul within the city of Corinth, wrote this letter to the church at Rome, preparing them for eventually his arrival to Rome to minister to that church. And so as we think about the author and we see it unfold for us in this book, the first thing we see is the authority of Paul. The authority of Paul. He says, A bondservant of Christ Jesus called called by God, set apart by the gospel as an apostle. The word apostle means one who is sent, one who has been uh, put forth as a delegate, as an ambassador, one who is to go with the authority of the one who sent them. Uh, apostle in a general sense means anyone who is sent, but in its specific sense, in the New Testament, refers to the twelve that Jesus called, and also Paul identifies himself as being called as an apostle. So with the authority, everything that he writes in this book of the Bible, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, everything he writes has authority, not just for that church, but as we're going to see here in a few moments, for all believers of all times. The authority of Paul, but also the authenticity of Paul. Many, many think of the Apostle Paul as this theological egghead, that he is just, he's just smart and he's just a genius in the way he writes, and, and he's just all brains. But as you dig into what Paul writes to these churches, we see his heart, that, that he, is, uh, he, he is one called by God to minister to as a bondservant to these churches. And even in the times where Paul writes to correct things in churches, the way that they're thinking, the way that they're acting, and sometimes it gets pretty harsh. But any of you know as a parent or as a grandparent, anyone who works with children, sometimes the most loving thing to do is to, is to be a little harsh because you want to see what's best for that child. And here Paul, with the heart of a father, is writing in, in authenticity as a bondservant because Paul not only loved the Lord, but Paul loved his church. He loved the body of Christ. And it's awesome as you read in the New Testament about Paul, about his beginnings as a, as a Pharisee, as, as one who was staunchly opposed to Christianity. One who was dramatically converted in Acts chapter 9 and one who from that point forward God begins to use to do great and mighty things. And the lesson that we have from Paul's life is that God can and does and will use anyone to do amazing things for him. Even someone like Paul who was persecuting the church he was arresting people for believing in Jesus to the point that many of these souls were put to death. And yet God still reached down, grabbed a hold of Paul in his heart, radically transformed him, and then called him to be his servant. If God can use Paul, he can and will use you also. The letter's author. But also we see the letter's audience. So if this is a, a, a letter written by Paul, who is he writing it to? You know, if we're going to understand this book, it helps us to know who is receiving this letter. Well, we read this in verse 7. He says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And we've talked about this many times. Saint means anybody who's saved. If you are born again by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been set apart by God, you are a saint. It doesn't take any special credentials to, to earn that elevated status of Christian. Paul is writing to all the saved folks there in the city of Rome. It's interesting because this is one of the few letters that Paul writes to a church that he did not personally establish. We, we see that in verse 10. He says, Always in my prayers, making requests, that perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Verse 13, I, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. So Paul did not establish this church. Now how did it come to pass? How did this church come into being? Most speculate that in Acts chapter 2, when 
uh, the, the, Peter began to preach, and we see that over 3,000 souls got saved. People from all over the world, including Rome, were there that day in Jerusalem when Peter preached. Many believe that through that sermon, as those folks left Jerusalem and returned to their homes, that perhaps through that the gospel spread, made its way into Rome. The church was established before Paul even began his ministry. So Paul did not found the church in Rome. He had not ever even been there. But he has heard some wonderful things. He's heard some great things about that church. And he wanted to go there and, and to bless that congregation and to be blessed by them because they're family, family of God. We just sang about that. But also, Paul wanted to go to Rome, not only to minister there, but he wanted to use Rome as a, as a springboard to take the gospel to other places. And in the end of Romans, we see Paul talking about wanting to go to Spain, to the far western part of the Roman Empire in that day. He wanted to go places where the gospel had never been. But Paul is writing to that specific church. He's writing to the local church. Believers gathered in covenant community in that specific place, in that specific time. A local church like we have right here. Paul is writing to that group of believers that had partnered together, that had covenanted together to come and to worship God and fulfill the Great Commission together. And in that church there at Rome, Paul is writing for several reasons. First of all, for the clarity, the clarity of the gospel. Paul wanted them to know that they knew the truth. He wanted to know what they believed. He wanted to assert for them what was the true gospel. And so there needed to be clarity of the gospel. And so in the book of Romans, we see just that. Paul spells out systematically what the gospel is and why all people need it and the difference it makes. The clarity of the gospel, also the certainty of the gospel. You have newer believers who are, who are now being confronted with the reality of the old sin nature. Okay, now that I am a Christian, I've given my heart to Jesus, why am I still struggling with this sin stuff? If I've been set free from sin's penalty, why does it still have some power and sway over me? What do, what do I do there? Paul writes to give them some certainty. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But also, he's writing to that local church about the unity of the gospel. That if you are a saved individual, you share a common bond with others who are saved. Even though you may come from diverse backgrounds, different racial, ethnic, different financial, economic backgrounds, whatever, educational, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, I'm in Christ, we're family. And Paul is writing about the unity of the gospel because you see in that church you had both Jews and Gentiles as part of the membership of that church. Jews who, who were raised ethnically and through their heritage, tracing their lineage back to, to Abraham, along with those who were not Jews. Jews and Gentiles both being converted by the gospel of Christ and being made one in the body of Christ. And they were in that church as a wonderful display of diversity. That you can take people who are different socially and ethnically, be it in Christ, they share unity, that fellowship together. 
the unity of the gospel. Paul, in the book of Romans, quotes the Old Testament more than all of his other letters combined. We have about 61 direct quotations. That's how we know, as Paul is writing to that church, that there is also a a strong Jewish presence there. Probably the minority compared to the Gentiles. But yet, Paul is showing the unity of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant becoming one in Christ Jesus, bringing all peoples into that one body. Also, the ministry of the gospel. Paul's writing to that church and saying, if you believe the right things, and God is, is, is dealing with you and helping you, and you're finding victory over sin's power in your life, and you're, and you're being united as one with other believers, there's also work to be done. We need to love those inside and outside the church that there is a a ministry to take place. We need to be reaching the lost, making disciples. We need to be sharing the Word and showing the love of God. And Paul is writing to that local church, reminding them of these things. But, as I said earlier, this letter's audience is not just that local church in Rome. It's also the universal church. What do we mean by that? We mean all believers, everywhere, of all ages, of all times. That means the entire body of Christ. That means that we are united, not just with one another because of our faith, we're united with all the other believers in our community, in our state, in our nation, in the world, but we also share unity and fellowship with those folks there that Paul wrote to. Some 2,000 years ago, halfway across the world, we share fellowship with them as the universal church. And as Paul wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have a a fancy word called inscripturated, that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, wrote these things down and God took this truth and put it into writing, preserved, inscripturated this letter from Paul, preserved for us, and now today we can go and we can read it and we can glean wonderful, valuable truth from this as well. Whenever Nancy and I first got married, we took our honeymoon. We went down to Florida to do a Disney cruise. But we were on the way down, and and I was telling her, when we get to Jacksonville, there's this great big bridge. Some of y'all have been over the Jacksonville Bridge. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, I I drove. We left early in the the morning, the wee hours of the night. We drove, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to to nap a little bit. And so I said, Nancy, how about you drive, and and I'll take a nap. I said, "But, but wake me up before we get to Jacksonville. Wake me up when we get to this certain spot because you're not going to want to drive over that bridge. And so I doze off. Next thing I know, I hear panic. And I'm like, what is it? And she said, oh, no, look, look, look. You know? And then we were right there. You know, she, she failed to wake me up in time. And so we had to go over that big bridge. But as scary as it was for her, we could not get from one point to the other lest we went over that bridge. And as we study the Scripture, what we need to do then is to go back in time and understand the biblical world, the the historical setting that Paul wrote this letter in, and then we need to, by the grace of God, build a bridge to our world today. We need to understand what was going on then, what was happening We need to study the history. We need to study the grammar and everything that that the Holy Spirit used in that setting. And then by God's grace, build that bridge to see how it applies to us today. 
Because it's not just an old, dusty letter that was written somewhere in the past that we study just for trivia's sake. No, no, no. The Word of God is living. And it is active. And it is for us today. All Scriptures God-breathed and profitable. So we need to, by the grace of God, build that bridge from the world of Paul in Rome to our world, our setting here today. The letter's audience, Rome, the letter's audience, us. Finally, we need to see the letter's agenda. As Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, why did he write it? Well, it's not like he just you know, sent them a text message and just said, sup, you know, what's going on? You know, Paul is writing for a purpose. He's writing with an agenda. And it does us good to understand what that agenda is. And we said at the outset that this is perhaps the most logical presentation of the gospel. And as we look at what Paul writes and his argument begins to stack upon itself, what we see in every aspect of this letter is Paul is laying out, spelling out the, the gospel of God. We see the glory of God on display. The majesty, the greatness, the, the wisdom, and the power of God through what took place in the life, and the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the intercession, and the return of Jesus. All that God has done for us. We see the beauty and the glory of God on display. First of all, we see God's glory in our salvation. Our roadmap here, the first five chapters, I believe, deal with the doctrine of salvation. We can even break that down. Specifically, the first two and a half chapters deal with the doctrine of sin. Paul talks about the universal effect of sin. It's impacted the Gentiles and the Jews. Everybody, all y'all, are infected with this disease called sin. All of us, myself included. We all deal with this sin problem. We can't fix it. Humanity has tried its best, but we just can't. But the good news is that God did what we could not do. Even in many cases, God did what we don't even want to do. At the end of Romans chapter 3, we read about the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus, the propitiation of the wrath of God poured out on Christ. And then we see in following that, through the doctrine of sin, and we see salvation, the cross, and our need for faith. The, the, the way to respond to what God has done in Christ, Paul shows chapters 4 and 5, is faith, the examples of Abraham and, and David, and what God does in our salvation brings glory to God. Secondly, God's glory in our sanctification. Big word means to be set apart, sanctified, be made sacred. And so in chapters 6 through 8, we see how we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, that God loves us and saves us just as we are, but then God begins to change us. And through that, that's where we find the certainty of our salvation, the assurance that we're saved, because God is he's working on us. The things we used to love, that we no longer love those anymore. The things that, that, we, know, that we used to not love, those things we love now. And, and then yet we see this struggle. Chapter 7, Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing those things. He says, what a, what a wretch that I am. Who can save me from this? Thanks be to God. 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul shows how Jesus, specifically through the Holy Spirit, in chapter 8, this work of sanctification, of taking the new Christian, maturing them to become more like Christ. Then in chapters 9 through 11, we see God's glory and His sovereignty, God's plan for all of humanity, and that includes not only the Gentiles, but also the Jews, and how they fit into this. How even, even those Jews who have rejected Christ up to this, mo- this moment, has, has God just thrown them aside? Has God replaced the Jews? No, absolutely not. But we see in chapters 9 through 11 how God brings Jew and Gentile together into one body. And so we see God's glory in His sovereignty, His plan unfolding throughout human history. Finally, we see God's glory in our service. Starting in chapter 12 through the end of the book, Paul tells us that through gratitude, we ought to live a life that is holy to the Lord. Out of all that God has done to save us, even in spite of all of our sin, in spite of the fact that that our sin led the Lord to the cross to suffer on our behalf, and in spite of our constant battle with sin in our lives even now, God loves us so much that God sets us apart for His glory and then God's grace is poured out on us to actually use us in His ministry to reach the lost, to display the love of Jesus in a practical setting. The local church, God tells us in the end of Romans to love those in the church and outside the church. Even dealing with other believers who are in different maturity levels, different understanding of how to live out the Christian faith. Paul shows us how to deal with these things in love. So Romans is not just theological. It's, it's richly practical as it comes to living out our faith in this world. So it's my prayer as we jump into this book of the Bible and as we study it that, that if you have not yet done so, that you will get right with God by fully trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you are a believer, it's my prayer that that you will become even more conformed to the image of Jesus as we get into this book of the Bible and we study it and we mine it for all the gold that is there. And it is so rich, it is so deep. And so I pray that we'll have the opportunity to look at these things. A few years ago, whenever I took my trip to Brazil, we had a layover in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'd never been to Charlotte before. Some of you all have been and and so I flew into Charlotte and, and flew out. And I remember as we were, were flying out, we flew in. It was dark. and flew out. It was daylight. And I got to look down and see the, the, the whole panoramic view of the city. And I was like, wow, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful-looking city. But then last year, when we went on sabbatical. We drove down to Myrtle Beach and, and drove back up. We actually drove into Charlotte and went around and saw some of the things downtown and explored a little bit and drove around and and just saw, as beautiful as it looked like above, I thought it was even more so. Well, we went in and, and, and explored downtown and, and saw the sights. Got a, got a completely different view once we got inside and got to actually driving around. It's my prayer that's what we do in this book of the Bible. Today, I, I pray that as we just did this overview and this road map, I, it's kind of like our flyover that we just kind of flew over the book of Romans and we said, wow, look at that. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. 
But over the next several weeks, we're going to land the plane and we're going to drive the car and we're going to, we're going to work our way through the streets of downtown Romans. And there's going to be some uh, one-way streets that we're going to have to veer away. There's going to be some construction. and you know We're going to have to, to, to work our way around and feel our way around. But as we do that, I think we're going to have a better understanding of what this book is all about. And again, I think it's all about the glory of God. Because God's glory is the goal of the gospel. That the joy and the satisfaction that we glean from being saved and being used of God and being part of the family of God, the joy and the satisfaction that comes from that ultimately gives greater glory to God who loves us and sent His Son to die for our sins. Would you join me in prayer? Father God,